welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Well, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. Things are getting a little chilly around here in West Virginia, and gets me excited about uh, things freezing so we can have less mud. <laughs> so, well, um, as far as updates go, I just wanted to say we're having a uh, great lineup of interviews. I've got a lot scheduled, so hopefully we can pull those off. And I, I think, again, not promising, but I think we're going to be able to have an episode almost every week throughout the, um, through the rest of the year. So those of you in the COVID doldrums coming into lousy holidays where we all have to be social distanced, maybe, just maybe, the Pastured Pig podcast could bring a little ray of sunshine into your week. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? (laughs) All right. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Today, we have interviewed somebody that actually has their own podcast. Uh, Brian has a podcast that is more centered toward uh, homesteading. Uh, but of course, within that homesteading genre, he talks about his pigs. So Brian Wells with 3B Farms in beautiful upstate New York, as he would say. And yeah, last year I was in upstate New York, and he is right. It is absolutely beautiful. It is nothing like downstate New York. <laughs> and when I say downstate, I mean New York City. Um, very stark differences between New York City and upstate New York. But uh, so Brian's going to talk to us about his pigs in particular. And, of course, in the uh, show notes, we'll talk about how you can find his podcast and his website and all that type of stuff. So, without further ado, we're going to jump in and talk to Brian. Right now, things up here are surprisingly warm. Uh, We've had a late Indian summer. We call it that. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but that's what we refer to it (laughs) as. That's what I always Um, called it when I was a kid, yeah. And uh, so it's been a late one, um, but they are forecasting cold weather the end of this week so back to normal all right so how upstate are you in upstate new york we are about an hour north of albany um so we're right on the vermont border yeah um yeah yeah that's that's some beautiful area we were up there last year and actually uh uh, I was just, I was literally blown away when I crossed over the state line in Vermont. We were headed to um, Burlington, Vermont. So we crossed over Lake Champlain and that was, that was unbelievable. I mean, I, I that was like storybook type stuff. I'd never seen anything that gorgeous. Absolutely. I refer to it on, on my podcast as beautiful upstate New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely different than downstate New York. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they think of New York, they, the only thing they think of is New York City. Sure, yeah. And, you know, New York is really a very, very diverse state. Upstate, uh, what they call North Country, which is more up in the Adirondacks, Central New York, Western New York, all, each area just has its own unique culture and feel and look, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous state. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. We we really enjoyed it, and we're anxious to go back and, and explore a little bit more. We're kind of passing through, so we'd love to be able to spend a little more time checking it out. 
Well, when you come up this way, make sure you, 3B Farm is on your uh, list of places to stop. Yep, may take you up on that. You want you out. I've, I've been known to sleep in people's driveways. Well, we'd be glad to have you. <laughs> and, and by the way, those lights that you recommended have seriously illuminated my garage. And as I told you, now I have a problem. I can see how big of a pack rat I am. Right, yep, yep. They did the same thing to my workshop. Help me fix yep. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 I have to unscrew them, so it looks like I got something done, yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Three B Farms. Is uh, first, let's talk about the entomology of the name. Is uh, is there something behind Three B, or do you have the world's smallest apiary up there? Well, it actually has to do with the fact that my name is Brian, my wife's name is Bonnie, and our son is Brian Jr. So it actually comes from that, and it it actually kind of got started a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, we were going to a church about a half hour away from here, which is located in a more suburban-type area. And we were kind of the oddballs at that church. We had chickens. We had, at that time, we didn't have pigs, but we had a garden, and we were doing that kind of thing. And so people started referring to it as the farm. How are things on the farm? Mm. And, and then it became 3B Farm, and it was kind of all tongue-in-cheek, and uh, that's, that's the, the background. Yeah, so it just sticks after that. Yep. Very good. All right, so uh, you'd mentioned uh, you know some some polyculture there. You have multiple uh, things going on. I know uh, you have a, you really have a pretty big garden and those type of things. But let's uh, let's talk about your overall setup, farm size, and, and just uh, maybe do a rundown of what you have and what you guys take care of there. Sure, we're on a little bit o- uh, over two acres of land. Uh, I think it's like two point one six acres, and it, it's. Our our land is very oddly shaped. It's kind of shaped like the head of a golf club. Kind of the the shaft comes back, that's our driveway, and then it kind of opens up. Hmm. And we have a lot of area that is wooded, which is where we keep our pigs. But really the reason why we we chose to keep our pigs in that area is because we live on top of what they refer to as Bald Mountain. And in the 1800s, they actually had um, limestone mining up here. And I'm convinced that as they were mining, our property became the place where they dumped all of the junk rock. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have lots and lots of stones and rocks. And then, you know, if you you do have soil in certain places, it's about 18 inches down to shale or, um, you know, limestone. And uh, it, it has proven to be very challenging to put in infrastructure, particularly fencing, uh, on this kind of land. Oh, yeah. My goodness, I can imagine. Driving a T-post isn't the easiest thing to do when you're hitting stone. Exactly. And then when you, you think you've got it almost there, and then you bottom out, and you've got to pull it up and start all over again, it's rather disheartening. And it's, it's a good workout, there's no doubt, but uh, <laughs> not a lot of fun. Right, right. So, uh, so you mentioned it briefly there, but give us a rundown of, uh, of the different types of farm animals, livestock that you're maintaining. Right now we have a laying flock. What we, what we do every year, we cycle out our, our hens. So uh, about a month ago we had between 80 and 100 um, standard breed chickens, but now we're down to a, between 40 and 50. You know, chicken math, you, you lose track. Yeah, exactly. Um, we also have 
turkeys, and they're getting ready to go to freezer camp next week, and we'll be out of them. We don't, they're uh, broad-breasted whites. We don't keep them over the winter. Mm. Uh, we also have uh, meat rabbits, although we're just down to what I refer to as two freeloading does. My buck died about, I think it was a little over a year ago, and at that point I was wanting to transition from the meat mutts that we have to a more to a, a breed, a, a particular breed. And I just haven't kind of gotten around to it, but I just have not had the heart to send my does over the rainbow, so I keep feeding them. <laughs> so I guess we'll stick around. I guess they become pets. Yeah, yeah, that's easy to do. <laughs> and then we also have uh, ducks and geese, uh, and then we have the American guinea hogs. All right. So let's talk about the American guinea hogs. Why did you choose that breed? Did you have experience with that, and how long have you had them on the farm? I did not have any experience at all with pigs before we got the American guinea hog, except for the fact that when I was really young, my grandfather would get a couple of feeders in the spring and raise them through to the fall, and then we would send them off to the freezer camp. But as far as myself or even growing up with my mom and dad, we had no experience whatsoever with pigs. I had that wooded area that I referenced before that was kind of this rocky, junky area. And not to say that it's a junky area. There's a lot of um, hickory and, and um, oak and, and those kinds of things in that area. But it just wasn't anything that I was, uh, it wasn't anything that I was able to do much with. And so I had always kind of in the back of my mind thought that'd be a great place to, to put pigs. Yeah. And so I, my mom subscribed me to Grit Magazine. And I think it was Grit Magazine. It might have been Mother Earth News. I get both. I'm pretty sure it was Grit Magazine. The end of 2016, they had an article on the American guinea hog. And as I started reading through that article, it was just everything that I had ever dreamed of in a pig. Um, it was a smaller breed. And with us having, you know, not a lot of land, I knew I wanted that. It was uh, a breed that's more docile in temperament. And, but, you know, at the time, my son was younger. I didn't want to have an animal that I would have to worry about him being around or my wife being around. And so that really, you know, spoke to me as well. And then I loved the fact that it was a heritage breed. And I had the opportunity, if I got involved with the breed, to help a breed recover. Um, and you've detailed, I won't go into all of that, you've detailed that on the podcast uh, in the past, as you talked to people about the American guinea hog, but mm. I really liked the idea of being able to, to take part in that. And so as I read about the American guinea hog, you know, I was kind of getting very, very excited about it, but it's one thing to read about something and see it on paper. It's totally another thing to, to see it in real life, so to speak. And so I jumped on the American guinea hog uh, association website looking for a breeder near me, hoping that within a four-hour radius there would be somebody that had American guinea hogs. Because as I was reading through it, they were talking about their fairly rare breed, blah, blah, blah. As I went on the, on the, the association website, what I found is in the town just south of us, in fact, we, we call it, it's legally the town south of us, but the kids that live there go to the same high school that my son goes to. Yeah. And there happened to be a breeder. And so I got in contact with her and made arrangements. And as soon as I laid eyes on them, I fell in love. And it was just like, that's, that's the pig that I want. And 
it's it's been a labor of love ever since. This was in 2016 was when the article came out. Early 2017 is when I went down and saw them, and then it was by the time I got all the infrastructure in place to house them, it was I think April or May of 2017 is when we actually brought the first pigs here. Yeah. So how many did how many did you start with? Did you start with a breeding pair? Well, that's, um, <laughs> I was supposed to start with a breeding pair. That's what I had talked my wife into, and she had given me the okay to get, uh, you know, a male and a female. And uh, I had made arrangements for uh, a female that was actually bred. And there was the lady that I had been talking to just south of us. She had a boar that I just absolutely loved. He, he had been a bottle-fed baby. He was a gorgeous-looking pig. And I was, I mean, I was relatively ignorant from the standpoint of what makes a good pig um, at the time. And yet, I don't know, there's just something about you, you can look at a pig and you can, I don't know, I, at least to me, you, you look at a pig and you can kind of see, if, does it look like a pig or does it not look like a pig? Yeah. Uh, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, and, and it was just, it was really a nice-looking pig, great personality, and I was all excited about it, but unfortunately... She had kind of dropped the ball on the paperwork side of things, and she couldn't register him. Mm. And I was really bummed, so I started looking around for another boar. And about that time, there was a guy who was, I don't know, about three hours south of me who had bought a boar and two sows. Both sows had just barrowed, and, and then he had a, um, a companion barrow for the boar. And for one reason or another, he decided he needed to get all the way out of pigs. And so the gentleman that I had made the agreement with to get the bread sow, he said to me, if you can work out something uh, with Randy and, and get that, that group of pigs, I'll refund you your money. Oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, which obviously he didn't have to, but he was very gracious. He's a great guy. He's actually the vice president of the American Guinea Hog Association and just absolutely loves pigs. Um, and, and for him, it's a labor of love as well. And so I was able to make a deal, and initially it was supposed to be me buying the boar and the two sows. And then eventually it became the borrow. And then the guy had a, was having a hard time. He thought he had the piglet sold, and he wasn't able to get the piglet sold. And so when it was all said and done, I went from zero to 14 hogs. <laughs> oh, My <laughs> wife is very, very gracious and forgiving, uh, very much like your wife. Yeah, uh, <laughs> sure, exactly. We are blessed men. Yeah, can tolerate a lot for sure. That's great, man. I love that. Absolutely. That's that's chicken math applied to pigs. And so we we ended up with uh, fourteen um, pigs, and then at one point, um, because of some unfortunate um, fencing mistakes on my part, uh, I had thirty three pigs here. I learned a lot about bunny math as it applies to pigs. Um, and that certainly was way too many pigs for the small area that uh, I have here. Yeah, even but for guinea hogs, that's a lot. To, to move them, and we're, we're back down to a more manageable amount now. All right. So uh, so even with that number, I assume you guys are not uh, just raising those for your own personal consumption. You're, you're doing some commercial sales with that, right? Correct. We do... It's one of those things I've been trying to figure out my market and o over the last four years and just about when I think I've got it figured out, 
you know, something else heads my way. Uh, but really what I've been doing is trying to, first, first and foremost, you know, it is definitely about raising food for us. And, you know, for me, it's just a big part of why we do what we do. It's not so much about, it's that we know what's not in our food, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so we're definitely raising pigs for us. Uh, I've also raised pigs for other people. So uh, the first part of December, I have four pigs that are scheduled to go to freezer camp. And one of those is ours, and the other three are for other people. So... Uh, I sell them by whole share and half share. Yeah. And in New York State, they're very, very strict with regards to the the laws from the standpoint of uh, unless they're USDA processed, you, you cannot sell the meat um, by the package. Even if it's at a state-run facility, it still um, can only be sold on the hoof, so to speak. Yeah. So I do that, and then I sell feeders to people, and I sell breeding stock. Because, you know, the other thing that I mentioned was that I got into this to really help the American guinea hog breed recover. And so I've been, you know, very, very fortunate to be able to help other people get started into American guinea hogs, whether it's by, you know, raising feeder pigs or by you know, starting their own breeding um, herd. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so as far as, as raising feeders and, and people looking to start a, a breed line, how far have you seen people travel to, to come get your hogs? I had uh, some people come up from Virginia. That's the farthest that they've come wow. uh, so far to get, to get pigs from me. A lot of it has been people that are within, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. Sure. Um, I had a lady that bought a, a pig for me this spring uh, that was about two and a half hours away from me up in Vermont, and unfortunately things didn't work out, and I had to go, I had to drive the two and a half hours, she came and picked up the pig, I had to drive the two and a half hours up there to uh, get the, uh, the sow and bring her back and all of the piglets, um, so that was that was a very, very interesting situation, but it worked out really well for me because as a result of that, she had bought a, a female for me that she had wanted bred. So I bred the, the girl back to her father because that was the only boy I had at the time. And it took the pig up there. The pig was just one of the sweetest pigs I've ever had. I absolutely loved this hog. And she farrowed, uh, well, the entire time she was up there, I was texting the lady back and forth because I always try to follow up with people, make sure things are going well, and, you know, are there any kind of questions, are there any issues? Because I, I want to make sure I'm doing right by them. I want to make sure I'm doing right by the, by the, the breed. I want to make sure I'm doing right by the pig that I sell. And so the, uh, the pig was up there, uh, and the whole time she's texting me back how sweet of a pig she is and how much she loved her and how much she was thankful that I had sold her the pig. And on Thursday, I get a picture from her of all the piglets, and she was just over the moon, you know, overjoyed with this, this uh, litter of piglets. And on Sunday, I'm sitting in church, and I, my phone's going crazy, and I pull it out, and there's just this barrage of texts how this pig had turned around and it had turned nasty. 
and she was scared of it, and she was afraid to have her grandkids around it, and so on and so forth. And really what it ended up being, after I kind of talked to her, and, and now that I've had to take back here on our farm, is that she was used to being around goats. Mm. And there are things that you can do with a kid in front of a mama goat that you cannot do with a piglet in front of a mama pig. Right, yeah. And uh, so it was just a matter of the mama was being protective. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of those things that I think, and, and I think you would agree with me on this, you want a certain level of protectiveness from, from the mother, especially if you're, you're keeping them out on pasture. But there's a, there's a fine line between aggression and protective instinct. Right, yeah. And uh, somebody that's brand new to pigs isn't going to pick up on that. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I mean, you, you made a good point there. Being used to goats, and you know, those those are not two comparative animals when it comes to interacting with young. Um, yeah, there's there's times you scoop up a piglet, you be better you better be ready to dash off because <laughs> yeah, exactly. gonna... you better be able to hurdle that fence. Exactly, because she's going to come after you. Well, yeah. Well, like you said, it sounds like it worked out in the end. But yeah, that is it's it's kind of that learning curve that you have. I know uh, you, you run into that when people buy livestock off of you and they're not 100 percent sure what they're getting or what they're doing. And that's one of the things that I really try to, you know, especially with the American guinea hog, um, it's it's a it's a bit of a different breed, you know. And you know, it's it's a lard hog. It's a low and slow proposition. It's not the buy it in. March and and take it to the freezer in in November. You know, it's that's not that. So, I, I really spend a lot of time when people contact me about buying piglets off of me, in asking questions and and you know educating them on what the animal is and what it isn't, and trying to make sure that it's a good fit. And I've turned people down uh, from from getting piglets for me because I just didn't feel like it was going to be a good fit for them. And, I, and at the end of the day, I didn't feel like it was going to be a good fit for the pig. And I didn't want it to be a black mark on the breed. Yeah. And so, you know, I really try to be very selective. I would rather pass on a sale um, than, than to put a pig in, in a bad situation. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's just, it's very, you know, again, for me, helping this breed recover is a huge part of that. And you don't want to put the breed behind the eight ball, so to speak. By, by having those bad situations. You know, one, one other thing, I, 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 back to the, um, the lady up there in Vermont, one of the good things that ended up coming out of that is she had bought a boar for, um, well, there's actually two things, that, great things that came out of this whole situation. First of all, she had bought a boar to uh, start her own breeding program up there, and when I saw the boar, uh, the boar was just, it was a nice-looking pig. And so I was able to work out a deal with her in some barter for some feeders in the spring uh, to be able to bring him back to the farm. So now I have two unrelated boars that I'll be able to, uh, you know, hopefully in the future sell breeding pairs where in the past I hadn't been able to do that. But then the other great thing that happened out of that whole situation is that I, I – by breeding the father to the daughter, I really got some of the nicest-looking pigs that I've ever had here. And it wasn't just that they were nice-looking pigs, but the temperaments uh, on these are just absolutely everything that you would want in American guinea hogs. Um, my, my boar is a very, very chill boar to begin with, and then the, the mama pig is just, again, 
one of the sweetest pigs I've ever had. Absolutely love that pig. And so by, by doing that combination that I probably wouldn't have done on purpose, I was really able to, to get some very, very nice pigs uh, and just sent one of them off this week to, uh, to be the um, sire of a, of, a new, of a new herd just south of us. And the thing that was really cool there is that the guy that was buying the pig, he's actually raised other breeds before, and he was just blown away by the temperament of that pig. Yeah. He, was, he was just taken back by, by how chill and, and docile and, and just how friendly um, it is. And so that, that really, in the end, it all worked out well. Excellent. All right. Well, good. So, um, so obviously with uh, guinea hogs and your maturity dates, how are you uh, managing to overwinter those? What's your infrastructure like when it comes to your pasture and then overwintering your hogs? That's one of the things that is a huge challenge for me, and that is that during the during the summertime they have, you know, not huge paddocks, but they're good sized paddocks um, where you know they have access to uh, the. I mean, especially great when the you know, in the fall when the wind's blowing and those hickory nuts are dropping around, they just go crazy. It's like crack to them. <laughs> They're just running around like gangbusters down in there. Yeah. But during the winter, um, it and, and here in upstate New York, we sometimes can get a lot of snow and sometimes we don't get many or much snow, but it certainly does get cold. And so for us, the biggest problem is the watering situation. Mm. That's just something that I have not been able to solve yet. Uh, besides just carrying water by five-gallon buckets full. Yeah. So what I really try to do in the wintertime is I try to, and it's really with all of my animals in the wintertime, um, I really try to concentrate and consolidate um, animals as, as closely together as I can um, to keep them in mind, you know, that obviously there's, there's issues with that. Um, and so, you know, I'm constantly, I'm, I'm lucky that I live not too far from a local town barn where there's a big, huge pile of wood chips. And so I'm constantly putting uh, the carbon diaper on it, I guess, as Joel Salatin calls it. Right, yeah. Um, and just really socking the wood chips and using that deep, kind of that deep litter method with really all of my animals throughout the winter. Um, and then, then, I mean, the, the upside to that is then you have a, a great amount of, of compost for the garden. Um, you know, not the following year, but the year after, after you let it age. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great, and that I mean, you gotta do what you can. I, there are times that I lament not having a cold enough winter that it freezes because we end up just having a, a muddy mess for about three months, mm -hmm. and it gets a bit frustrating. But yeah, and that's why you know that's where again it kind of is. You know, you're, it's kind of a catch-22 situation. This summer was a very, very dry summer for us up here. I think it was for you it was a little bit more of a wet summer, but for us it was a very dry summer. Yeah. And, you know, from a garden perspective, that sucked. But from a pig management perspective, it was awesome because everything, you know, it wasn't super hot, but things were kind of dried up. And so I could really stay ahead of in the areas where, you know, I have pigs because in some areas, I do have pigs in um, uh, an enclosure that's just uh, hog panels, so four hog panels, one pig in there. And so I was able to really stay ahead of putting the wood chips in there and, you know, kind of doing that deep litter thing. 
um, where in the spring and in the late fall, when you're getting all of that rain, it, it sometimes is a challenge to stay ahead of that. And it's just that muddy mess. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So um, the fact that you're on just a little over two acres for the entire property, how much do you have designated for your pigs? I would say right now roughly, and it's tough to say, but probably about a third of it um, would be for, for my pigs. Um, a lot of the wooded area is, is for the pigs, and then I do have, again, a couple of those paddocks that are, are set up that are the four-by-fours, uh, uh, you know, for hog panels. Um, my goal, and I hope to do it this year, uh, but then with the whole COVID thing, we put all of our effort and, and energy and money into the garden, trying to, mm. to uh, make sure we could grow enough food. Right. But there's um, a strip of woods that... I have, and, and part of it is I've never really discovered where the boundary is, but my property butts up against the old town dump. And so, I, you know, the, the, it's all capped off. It's been capped off for 30 years. But there's a, a buffer zone there between me and the, 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 the dump that I don't technically own, but nobody's going to give me any grief if I put up some temporary electric fence and, and put some pigs down in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so my hope this year had been to kind of do that and really have a little bit more of a rotational system where I could take the pigs off of the, the ground that they're on now and kind of just rotate them around, and I could set up probably two other nice-sized paddocks. Um, but obviously that didn't happen this year. Hopefully next year that'll that'll take place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that sounds like a good plan. I mean, if it's if it's fallow land and nobody's using it, then and you keep everything temporary, no permanent in, infrastructure, then it's one of those just do it and wait for somebody to tell you to stop. <laughs> exactly, and the, and the thing is, I have a really great relationship with both of my neighbors yeah. um, on both sides, and they are they are both of the same cloth that I am. That you know, live and let live. Um, so, and, and, you know, we, we work together great. If, if, you know, they have a problem, I help them out. And if, and if I have a problem, they've helped me out. And when I go on vacation, they'll come over and take, you know, looking on the animals and, and I do the same for them. And so it, it's just really a great, a great group of neighbors that I have here. Um, but, you know, you also want to make sure you respect them as well. And I, I do my best to try to make sure my pigs stay where they're supposed to be. As they say, good fences make good neighbors. So, yeah, um, we're, we're trying to make sure that we don't uh, encroach too much on them. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, Brian, you'd mentioned your your pasture layout there, and then even the hog panels. Now, do you have any shelter that you ha that you have to have since it's it gets so cold up there, or they manage well out out without it? Mm, no, I, I have shelters, and my shelters are. In fact, I don't think I have two shelters that are the same. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, a lot of it has been doing the best you, you can with what you got and, you know, working with materials that you have available. And sometimes it's been a matter of, you know, I had a bit of an emergency and I needed to throw something together quick. Um, other times it's been, you know, somebody saying, hey, do you, you know, do you want a, um, a doghouse? And uh, sure. And I bring it home and that becomes uh, some housing for pigs. Right. So right now, 
Um, I have one one house that is made out of pallets covered in plywood with some old tin on top of it. Uh, one of my shelters is uh, basically it's an A-frame with some old tin on it. Uh, another shelter is the dog house that we, we brought from a co-worker's house. And then I also have a, it was supposed to be a, a hoop-style chicken coop, except that when I built it, I built it thinking I was doing the right thing by using pressure-treated 2 by 6s on the base. Um, the problem with that is is that you add a whole heck of a lot of weight when you do that. Right. <laughs> and I, 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 my dad always would say it's heavier than a dead preacher. And so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you just you couldn't move it around the yard. And at the time when I, when I first built those things, um, I, I, I was working a job where I, I did quite a bit of traveling. And my wife was left trying to move those things around on the on the yard, and it just it didn't work out well. I like to put it that way. I don't think my yard has ever fully recovered from that disaster. Uh, we we thought that we were doing a a good thing by raising standard breed roosters. It was a disaster. Oh wow! Um, but anyhow, so one of those hoop coops got parked for the pigs. Uh, and the other hoop coop got parked as the rabbitry and a winter run for my chickens. Yeah, and so neither one of them are mobile any longer. Right. Yeah. And then I also set up a um, a summer shelter using it's just key posts and arched um, cattle panels that I cover with tarps. Yeah. But it it won't support a snow load. So here in a couple of weeks, what I'll do is I'll um, dismantle. I, I really won't dismantle. I just take the tarp off of it. And uh, then those pigs will have access to um, the hoop coop um, shelter. Um, and so, and then, then the other thing that I use as well is, I don't know if you've seen, you probably have the, um, I can't remember if they call it the $30 or the $50 chicken tractor from Oscar with Doug and Stacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, I built one of those, and I have used that. That thing has been amazing as far as multipurpose. Um, I have used that for meat birds. I've used that for turkeys. I've used that for piglets. Um, it's it's too small for a, a, a large size American guinea hog, but right now I'm using that with a little boar that um, only had one testicle, so I couldn't castrate it. Oh, yeah. And so I'll harvest him early here in late December and well mid December, and we'll have. Um, We'll do smoked uh, pork ribs for uh, Christmas, and the shoulders we'll use for pork and sauerkraut for New Year's, and then the hams I'll do in the prosciutto. Oh, yeah, sounds great, man. Very good. All right, so where have, uh, transition over, so where have you settled on feed? How how are you taking care of feed? What's your regimen? What's your plan? What's your choice when it comes to feeding out your AGH? Yeah, that's that's been something that we, you know, I have really experimented a lot with with feed. Um, I when I first started when I first started into the American guinea hogs, I was doing um, a, I had a sprouting system, you know, the five gallon bucket sprouting system, and I think I was running it about four or five days, I think, on on the just to get it to the condition that I wanted, because I was using a mixture of barley, rye, and oats. And the, the rye sprouted very quickly. The barley 
sprouted fairly quickly, but the oats took forever to sprout. And so in order to get kind of what I wanted to see, I was, I think I was taking it to about five days. So I had five buckets and I was just rotating them um, through that. Uh, and then I was mixing in um, a hog mineral. Um, but that really was, it was very labor intensive. Um, and, I, and when I really sat down and figured it out, when I first started doing it, I was able to source the barley from a local farmer. I was able to source the oats from a local farmer. Um, and I was able to source the rye from a local farmer. So it was fairly, and I was really getting a great deal on the rye. So it was fairly cost effective. But the being able to get the rye kind of dried up, and then in New York State, they implemented um, the Farm Brewery Act here. And so then it was, barley became more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was left with oats, and then I was buying wheat from a local feed store. Well, when I, when I sat down and I did the math on it, I really wasn't saving a whole heck of a lot of money doing it, and I was putting a lot of labor into it. And we were going to go on vacation a couple of years ago, and I was like, I really don't want to saddle the person that I'm I'm leaving the farm with with dealing with that. And so I moved over to a, a co- commercial hog feed that I get from a local feed mill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pretty much that's been their base diet ever since. Um, what I do with that is I feed them um, twice a day, about a quart um, per adult pig. And then if I've got a nursing sow, she'll get two to three quarts, depending on her condition. And then with the piglets, I just kind of eyeball it. And as they grow, I increase the feed. Yeah. And then we supplement it with, you know, um, like uh, last week, I was able to get a whole bunch of pumpkins mm. from farm stands that were closing down. Um, and so, you know, I'll feed that to them. Um, periodically, I'm able to get some spent grain from a local brewery. And so I'll mix that in there as well. And pre-COVID, my mom and dad's church had a food pantry. And when when they had leftover bread from the food pantry, then my mom and dad would bring that to me, and I would sparingly, you know, throughout the week feed that to them as well. Yeah. Um, but it's predominantly the locally sourced um, pig feed. And it's, it's a commercial feed. It's not... Um, non-GMO, it's not organic, anything like that. I, I had really looked into all of that, and from a cost perspective, um, it was it was just astronomical, the difference. And I, I'm not somebody who has a whole lot of confidence in the um, in the in the food chain there, so to speak. Right. Um, I've just read too many stories where you know. Um, quote-unquote organic grain, well, let's say conventional grain went on the boat in Turkey and it came off as organic grain in the United States. So (laughs) I would much rather buy from a local guy, even if he's using, you know, conventional methods because I know I'm getting what I'm paying for. Yeah, yeah, that's that's been my attitude as well. A, you know, first of all, because it's cost prohibitive, but B, yeah, I'm I'm the same way. You know, if I'm going to, lesser of the evils to me is to buy conventional and know that it was raised local. 
and at least uh, you, yeah. you know what you're getting there. And the other piece to it as well is, that, you know, if you start thinking about, you know, and, and some people are concerned about the, the carbon footprint and so on and so forth, you know, you, st- you stop and you think about having that grain shipped from the, you know, the other side of the world, the impact that that has on the environment. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other piece to it as well is I'm not 100% convinced, convinced that in some of those countries that are sending us, quote-unquote, organic grain, that um, their methods of, of farming would be what we would consider environmentally friendly anyhow. So yeah. for me, I just prefer to support a local guy. And, uh, but, you know, I understand why people choose a different path, and it's all good. Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. To each his own. It's it's what your what your market will bear and what your uh, what's best for your operation. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, man, I feel like we could probably go on talking for hours, uh, but uh, we, we probably shouldn't do that to our podcast listeners. But I do want to hit a couple couple quick things w- with you, real quick. So um, you had mentioned your customer base and just to kind of figure out your your market there when it comes time to actually selling your holes and halves. What have you done? How have you have you worked to generate those those leads? Where do those come from usually? Some of it has been family and friends. Um, some of it has been word of mouth. Uh, I do advertise on on our farm Facebook page, and so people can you know people found out about it there as well. Um, and so it, it's kind of been a little bit of this, a little bit of that. A recent sale that I had came from another farmer. Somebody reached out to uh, um, a friend of mine, and uh, he didn't have any pigs available, but he sent them my way. And, you know, that's one of the other things that's been great. Now, this particular individual is not an American guinea hog uh, um, person. He raises, uh, I I call them pink pigs. I'm not exactly sure what the the breed is. Um, But uh, he... One of the great things about being a, a part of the American Guinea Hog Association, though, is that it's it's a it's a pretty close knit community, and there's not a sense of competition. It's a matter of somebody might contact me and say, "Do you have a pig available?" And at that point in time, I might not, and so I'll start contacting other, you know, breeders in the area to say, "Hey, what do you have? Do you have anything that would 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 fit this individual's need?" And, and they do the same thing for me. And so that also has been a source of sales for me. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah, that works out well. It's good to have that network in place. It is. It is. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the, one of the many benefits of, of being a, a member of the, you know, the Breed Association. Certainly. Certainly. Well, I have to ask you the question that I ask everyone, uh, and you, you're probably familiar with what's coming. But uh, so with your experience in raising pigs on pasture, what is your favorite part of doing that? And, and I was trying to figure out how to answer that question um, because, uh, you know, obviously the easy answer is bacon. Um, <laughs> that's right. I, I think that's, just that's a given. The easy answer. Yeah. Um, they, they taste great. Uh, but, you know, I, I just – there's so much enjoyment and satisfaction that comes from it. It's a matter of knowing that I'm helping a breed recover. Um, There's a sense of satisfaction that comes from that. Uh, Being able to, you know, when you sit down to your your dinner and you look at your your plate and on your plate, you know, 75, 80% of uh, your food came from your, your homestead. 
Um, that's an awesome feeling. In fact, this past Sunday, it wasn't pork. It was it was a goose. My mom and dad came down, and we had um, roast goose, and we had roast duck. It was the first time I'd ever had goose. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved it. But, um, you know, looking at that plate, like 95% of the food on that plate on Sunday was stuff that we had we had had a hand in raising and growing or processing here on our homestead. Yeah. So I think that's just that, that's another huge part of it. And just pigs are pigs are fun. They they have such great personalities. And I can just sit and watch pigs all day. Yeah. They're they're just they're just a hoop. Um. So. Yeah. I, I just I love them. I I I I told my wife, especially my boy. I told her that the day that he leaves this farm, whether it's, uh, you know, going over the rainbow or I, I sell him on to somebody else, I will cry like a little baby. <laughs> um, and I just make no bones about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good to have that uh, connection with your livestock. Definitely. Well, um, I, I, before I ask you the question about how people can find you, I do want to point out to everyone that Brian does have a podcast of his own. It's uh, homesteading related, and it's called the Homestead Journey Podcast. It's a really good podcast. You guys need to check it out if you're interested in more of the, the broader scope of homesteading and small farming. Uh, it's very entertaining. I, I like his uh, I like your variety of, of topics, so it's good stuff. But uh, other than your podcast, Brian, how can people find out more about your setup? Well, we are on Facebook, probably too much on Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> uh, on Instagram, they can find us, uh, the Homestead Journey, uh, I think it's the Homestead Journey, I don't think it's the Homestead Journey podcast, but try either one, you'll find us. Uh, the same thing on Facebook, we also have a farm page, so 3B Farm on Facebook as well. Um, I try to use the, the farm site uh, on Facebook to you know, for sales for the farm and then the podcast to kind of, um, you know, talk more about homesteading. But obviously there's there's bleed over between the two. And then uh, our website is thehomesteadjourney.net. Um, and so there's more information there as well. Wonderful. All right. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time out uh, to talk to me. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I pray you have a good rest of the week. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care. So I really enjoy talking to Brian. He's one of those guys that uh, you, know, you, you just talk to. I, I think that, that actually was the very first conversation I've ever had with him. But you have a conversation with a guy like that, and you think, okay, I've known this guy forever. Um, so it's really neat to talk to those people. I don't know that Brian's ever met a stranger, though. He's, he seems like they're one of those personality types. I'd like to see him in person one of these days. Maybe that's an excuse to get back up to New York to be able to roam around the beautiful land. Well, again, I hope everyone is enjoying uh, the podcast. We're still playing around with the sound a little bit. It's hilarious. If if you guys actually would see my setup here, how I've had to uh, Appalachian engineer this <laughs> to get this to work because we live so rural, only have a landline, and the technology I've tried to acquire to record landline conversations is, is pretty lousy. It's either 30-year-old technology or it costs a gazillion dollars, which I don't have. But uh, so I don't know if you noticed, there's a little bit of a hum in this uh, in this call. And the reason why with Brian is is it was actually raining that day. So, yes, when it rains in our area, rain gets in the water line or rain gets in the water line. It's what it is. It's a water line instead of a phone line. 
uh, rain gets in the phone line and actually creates that interference. There's times that we can't even hear people because the interference is so bad. But as I say, that's the price to pay to live in paradise. So uh, we're going to continue to make tweaks on that. Hopefully it improves. Um, we're going to look at some other options there. Maybe one of these days if we... Uh, if somebody wants to pay me a gazillion dollars to advertise on the podcast, we can invest in some bigger, better equipment. But until then, um, if you have any suggestions, any comments, any uh, if you want to come on the podcast or specific topics, let me know. Be more than happy to pursue those. Um, it's one of those things where uh, I, I try to seek things out, but it, it's much it's uh, much better sometimes when you all recommend things for me or you decide to come on yourself. Well, I pray everyone have a great week. Please stay safe. Uh, COVID's on the rise right now uh, at the time of recording this. So I pray that everyone just, if you just spend time out in the pasture with your pigs and don't talk to other people, don't come face to face with other people, then you'll be okay. But I know that's hard this time of year. So everyone stay safe and God bless. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.